0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn back to the first passage we read together in the book of Psalms, Psalm 138, and I would direct your attention for our consideration this afternoon to verse 7, Psalm 138, our text is found in verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. David, who is the human author inspired by the Holy Spirit in this particular song, inspired song given to us to sing, knew a lot about what it meant to be in trouble. Early from the days of his youth, he found himself in constant turmoil, upheaval, many perplexing difficulties. He had enemies. He knew what it was for the hot, fierce wrath of those who would consume him, to be breathing down his neck. In his early days, he had to dodge spears that were leveled at him, javelins thrown from the hand of Saul, chased like a rabbit. Hunted in the wilderness. Later on, he had his own flesh and blood betray him and seek to topple and overthrow his kingdom. His son Absalom seeking the reins that were never given to him. And again, David is chased into the wilderness. And in the midst of all of that, in his days of glory within Jerusalem, it was one of constant warfare. Blood ran in the streets on the right hand and on the left, enemies on every side of. Israel. And he spent his days extending the borders in the advance of Zion's cause through battle after battle after battle. He had all of the perplexing difficulties of his personal life and challenges within his household and among friends and the other things that were sources of of difficulty, his own sin, his fall consequences that came in the wake when David writes though I walk in the midst of trouble he knew of which of that which he spoke but these are as you well know first of all the words of a greater than David the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he bore throws David's afflictions into insignificance he is the man of sorrow he is the one who is acquainted with grief. He is the one who wrung out his soul from beginning to end under all of the turmoil that he, to which he was subjected. He had, at the entrance of his ministry, driven into the wilderness, tormented like no other ever has been or ever will be by the fierce assaults of the devil, betrayed by those who were closest to him. All the the chattering of the religious establishment, the fierce anger of the Roman government which eventually executed him, the people with all of their variation and and instabilities and so many other things, most of all being the sin bearer, the one who himself had to, he who was of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, who was full of grace and truth, where no guile ever found in him, and yet laid upon him the enormity of the debt for the sins of all of his people. He was bruised, he was broken, he was battered, and his whole life was one of overwhelming sorrow and difficulty. Our Lord Jesus Christ knew what it meant to be in the midst of trouble, far more than David did, far more than we ever will But it's because he found himself by his own wish and will in the midst of trouble that his people, following in his train, are able to take up these words. And the church, both then, in the days of David, and now, and will be in generations to come, are able to take these words as our words in Christ Jesus and to find that just as these things were fulfilled in him, so they must be and will be fulfilled in the church in all ages and in the life and experience of the individual Christian. We're going to note three things this afternoon as we seek to unpack and expound verse 7. First of all, we begin with trouble. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Now the context here uh, seems to especially have at the fore trouble that comes from the opposition of man, because it goes on to say, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies. Now the wicked by nature are at enmity against God. The natural man and natural institutions that are comprised of natural men governments that are filled with natural men all bear enmity against god and so we're not duped we're not so foolish as to think that people just have a relative indifference to the lord and his claims and his cause and his people no They're not indifferent to God's laws. They're not indifferent to God's church and people. They are, in fact, opposed to it. And it finds a variety of expressions. Some are more hostile in terms of their expression, others less so. But the root remains the same because it is the wrath of men. It is the opposition of men. It is the trouble that God's people face as a consequence of this but what is it all really at the end of the day, right? The opposition to the church. We hear many in our day and age, what's going to become of us? What's going to happen to the church in the West? What's going to happen to the church in, in the U.S.? What's going to happen in our own family and circumstances and what's unfolding and where is it leading and how's it all going to end and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's usually expressed in a condition and circumstance where man is gigantic and people feel as if, the power of man is such that we're prey, that the power of man is such that that whatever that power does or chooses to do, well, the consequences are what will follow for us, and we have no say in, in such things. But the fact is that the power of man is utterly contemptible. Utterly contemptible. This is why we heard and the early chapters, this Isaiah, two, end of Isaiah, two. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For what account will ye make of him? Cease ye from man. And what what is this? What is this idea? Right. The the Lord Jesus comes to us Himself and He says, Listen, sit down. Let me tutor you here. So you've got opposition. The Roman Empire, they're big and scary and powerful, and you know, the Jewish. Uh, establishment you know they seem very powerful and so on and the lord says but it's it's not that complicated all they can do is kill the body that's the furthest reach that they have they can go no further why is it that you fear one who is only able to extinguish the life of the body fear god fear the one who can both destroy the body and cast the soul into everlasting fire and hell. God is the one who should be feared. He should be the one that looms large. He should be the one that we are consumed with. Because the pomp of man, the pride of man, is absolutely reckless. Men left to themselves, swelling with all of their sense of grandeur and influence and ability and all the tools and so forth, that they have absolutely reckless. They will and do make a mess of everything. And yet they seem fierce. We find ourselves in the midst of trouble. Esau seemed fierce to Jacob. And he was, humanly speaking. Nebuchadnezzar seemed fierce to Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was exceedingly wroth. But what are these things before the Lord? Because at the end of the day, God's people are not the problem. All of the enmity and opposition is ultimately focused against God himself. We will not have this king, King Jesus, to rule over us. We will not stomach it. We will not countenance it. We will not tolerate it. The focus is on God himself and therefore on his people and therefore on his truth, his doctrine, his claims, his, his church and all that comes with it. And behind that opposition of the natural man, which is deeply embedded and cannot be removed without divine grace, lies the ultimate enemy, which is the devil, our our. our Our warfare is not chiefly against flesh and blood. It is the devil who has the greatest enmity against Christ's church. You remember in prophetic literature how this is brought out in Revelation 12, which we're not going to deal with, but in Revelation 12, verse 12, you have these words, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. It's ultimately trouble that comes from the opposition of the devil himself. And he, of course, has his, his worker bees. He's got his little pathetic ants in high places who run around and do his bidding. And we are we're conscious of that. But it is ultimately the devil that hates the Lord's people. And, God, and, and the enemies of God, they hate the good works of God's people because, as 1 John 3 tells us, their works are evil. So the thought of someone standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who upholds and sustains everything, the one who's going to bring the whole world to judgment, the one who alone provides the sole source of salvation, God says, and then you fill in the blank with regards to any aspect of his law, any aspect of his revealed will, anything from Genesis to Revelation, that God says, and that light that is poured into the dark pool of this world is resisted because it exposes the darkness men hate they don't want to hear about what god says regarding religion idolatry the sabbath they don't want to hear what god says about the only way of salvation and the true religion they don't want to hear about sexual purity as god defines it or 50 million other things because their evil deeds are being exposed and so the church finds themselves in the midst of trouble, and here the the church is always is seeking, as we sing in Psalm 122, seeking the peace of Zion, seeking the 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 first God Christ's kingdom and His righteousness, seeking the advance of His cause. That's all we want. That's all we. That's all we're about. We're simple. We have one one task, and that is to build the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the strength we have in the very brief space that we're given. So we're seeking the peace of Zion. And yet the enemies, as we sing in the Psalms, they stand in the sidelines and they say, raise it, raise it to its foundations. Not R-A-I-S-E, not lift it up, but raise it to the ground. Raise it to its foundations. You see the corruption, you see the depravity of human nature that go astray even from the time that we are born apart from the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every thought of the natural man and every imagination of the natural man's heart, all of his bent, all of his inclination is only evil and that continually, as Genesis 6 tells us. And so as a result of that, there, there is no truce. No truce possible. Right? People think in every generation, they think to themselves, well, it you know, people just don't understand. And and the world just doesn't understand. If we could just explain to them, if we could just marshal arguments to persuade them, if we could only, you know, accomplish the thing. We need to get together with them, we need to work together with them, we need to see that we're We're able to to work together in a common cause and so on and so forth. And the Lord says no. He says no truce is permitted. No alliance is, is allowed. We work for one, and that is the great king. And all of the ideas that are so popular now and always have been, that somehow we're going to you know, harness these entangling alliances to bring about that evil means, through that evil means some notable good is a figment of people's imaginations. It's a fool's errand. No, we find ourselves, we walk in the midst of trouble and it cannot and will not be otherwise. We walk in the midst of trouble. Trouble, of course, is found in those who oppose Christ. Right? You have Ahab is the one who comes to Elijah. Thou troubler of Israel. Who's the troubler? It's the wicked king who won't bow to Jehovah. Elijah is the one coming with the truth that sets free. So there's the trouble. Secondly, there's turning. The turning of these things so though i walk in the midst of trouble thou wilt revive me thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies so here the lord is saying you're in the midst of trouble but that's not all that you're to factor in that the lord himself arises that the lord himself will revive his people as we'll hear more in a moment the lord stretches forth his own hand and he opposes those who opposes people. He he stands against this wrath of our enemies. He opposes their opposition. Indeed, he is able to turn even their wrath to his own praise, if he is so pleased to do so, as we see in Psalm seventy six. Our faith may be weak at times, and it may shake, and it may look as if the Lord's people are in desperate straits and may be ruined, and so on and so forth. And the Lord says, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies. The Lord comes ruling in the midst of his enemies. He rules in the midst of his enemies. We are in the midst of trouble. He is in the midst of all of that among enemies, overruling them as as a governor, as the ruler, as the sovereign. And so the Lord is able and has done over and over and over and over and over again. He comes in and frustrates, utterly confounds all of the conniving and mischief and machinations of of his, his enemies. He, he takes them in their own trap. They, they dig a pit for others, and the Lord causes them to fall into it. You know, the stone that they have for others rolls over top of them. They rage against the Lord, and all the while, they think that they're gaining the upper hand to put down the true religion, to put down the claims of Christ, to put down the moral law of God, and so on. And while they rage against God, all the while, unbeknownst to them, They're treasuring up to themselves wrath against the day of wrath. They're fulfilling the very purpose that God himself has. He is pleased to give them rope with which to hang themselves, to turn this into a display of his own justice, to stretch forth his hand against their wrath, and to show forth the glory of his own sovereignty. Not always easy to see this, is there? We think in terms of the church corporate, threats, forebodings, in the church at large. But you can take it down to the individual level as well. What was Job to make of the Chaldean robbers who swooped down upon his estate and hold it away? The Lord was in that as well. And the Lord was doing, not only with Job, but with the Chaldean robbers, his own purpose. They are culpable in all of their wickedness. They contrive this idea of sacking Job and stealing from him. They're going to be damned for it, held accountable for it. But the Lord was using it, even these enemies, in order to accomplish his, his purposes. So often that very familiar passage from Isaiah is the one that we so often overlook or we think about when we're not in the midst of trouble, when we're not in the midst of difficulty, that we're to be still we're to know that Jehovah is God, that he will be exalted among the heathen. Right? we think of the stillness, the quietness, the peace. Be still. And we think of knowing the Lord Right, we have to have our minds fixed upon him, our minds stayed upon him, and to trust him. We have to think of the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and so on. But it does go on, I will be exalted among the heathen. He will be exalted in the earth. That part is so often left off. There are those who seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and God uses that very, that very pursuit to build up his church. Over and over and over, you'd think that the devil would be putting his head through a wall in frustration because all of his pursuits to destroy the church are turned to be the very means that God employs to build up his church. And he frustrates all of the opposition to his own cause. He may use it at times. He'll allow you know, opposition to rise, the furnace to be heated and heated up and so on. He'll bring uh, storms in upon the church. The winds are howling and blowing at great speed. And he's separating the wheat and the chaff. He's purifying his church in the process. He's, he's pleased to, uh, to cause her to be revived in that sense. When the church is in a time of ascendancy, everybody and their brother can play along. And hypocrites can thrive in in that context. But when the hammer falls and the fire comes and the winds blow and all that comes with it, all of a sudden things change dramatically. God uses the wind of man's wrath to blow the chaff away. He purges his people those who are true Christians, he purges and purifies them. He burns off the dross and covers them with the purity of glittering gold. He uses it to unify his people. He stretches forth his hand against the wrath of his enemies, but he uses that opposition to uh, to unite his people He's speaking about gold. You take pieces of gold. They all run together when you melt them. You can have several ounces of gold, throw them all into the same cauldron, heat it up. They're made one one piece of gold. The Lord uses it to strengthen and to tighten down the ties uh, between God's people and the church at large. You know, whereas schism, separation, and these other scandals, which are a provocation to the Lord within the broader church can be comfortably tolerated in times of peace. In times of great difficulty and persecution, those walls have to be broken down. Those 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 breaches have to be mended. Those walls have to be repaired. And there has to be a coming and pulling together on biblical and principled terms. Oftentimes the gospel is multiplied. The kingdom advances, so you Yeah, I mean, we could give so many examples of this. An obvious one is from the book of of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, it opens, And Saul was consenting unto his death, that is Stephen's death. So Stephen has just been martyred. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over them. But look at over him. Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And what we find is that the Lord brings uh, these times of persecution. It results in a diaspora, And that despora takes the gospel into the Gentile nations. He had said, go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Lord comes along and he throws wind in their sails. And he carries them fast and furiously in a very short space to the, the, nearly the, the, the corners of the then-known world where the gospel is being taken and preached in all, all four directions. The Lord uses it for the gospel to be multiplied. Sometimes the fragrance of the church is actually intensified through these, these times of trouble. In our first home, we planted, you know, we took um, stones and put them out and, uh, in the yard and made a, a spot where there was like a fire pit and we planted Roman chamomile in between the stones, right? So Roman chamomile, you can take it and cut it and I think make tea with it and so on and so forth. But the neat thing about it is that when you squish it, it gives off its fragrance and actually it thrives. And so when you're walking on it, not only do you get the fragrance that comes up, but it also causes the chamomile to, to, to multiply. As, as a consequence. This is a picture of, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It appears to be trampled, being trampled, and yet it is producing fragrance to the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's multiplying in the process, right? The Lord's people praise Him when they're delivered. We see that. The backside of the Red Sea, Exodus 15, we have the song, we're praising the Lord. The horse and the rider, they've been cast into the depths of the sea. The Lord has trounced Pharaoh and his army, and so on and so forth. And the Lord has been pleased to, to deliver his people. But it's more than that. The Lord also wants to make his enemies to acknowledge his glory. Because if you go the chapter before in Exodus 14, what do we read? In verse 18... And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And you come to verse 24. And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud, and troubled the host of the Egyptians, and took off their chariot wheels, that they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said... Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord Jehovah fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Here God's enemies in their own mouths are acknowledging God's glory. And the Lord loves to bring this to pass. In the mystery of providence, to see God's hand when he stretches forth his hand against the wrath of his enemies. It's not only for the benefit of his people, but it is also in order that his enemies might see it. He frustrates them. He baffles them. In order that he might bring about good for his, his people. Right? This is most beautifully displayed where? The cross. Right? The cross appears to be the greatest defeat. If you're looking on the surface from a distance. Here is the Son of God who has come into this world, preached righteousness, healed the sick, proclaimed the kingdom of God, called men to repentance, delivered those who were possessed, set forth the glory of his Father, and so on. And enemies, Judas, the betrayer, the Jews who have forsaken their Messiah, Rome, who won't bow to the great king, all come together. And crucify the Lord of glory what do you learn at the cross you learn Christ always triumphs that at that point what is happening in at the cross is that the Lord Jesus Christ in solidarity with his people is descending into the depths of death itself in order to trounce death in order to have victory over sin and Satan and hell and death itself To make an open show of the devil and all of his hosts. And in order to deliver and save his people from their sins as the atoning sacrifice on their behalf. Well, if you can go to the cross, which is sort of the quintessential picture. Then you can extrapolate and realize that is going to be the truth everywhere and always. Christ always triumphs at the points where the church seems... In the most trouble and the greatest amount of wrath against them and under the, th- the, the most thorough defeat, uh, threat of, de- of, of defeat, be sure, wait for it, the Lord triumphs. He grants victory. He grants deliverance. He turns everything upside down on its head and shows forth the strength of his own arm. The early church learned this, didn't they, Tertullian's famous words, that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That whole concept, those days of persecution were days in which the gospel was, was triumphing. And the Lord often even temporally brings relief, right? He brings all that comes with the establishment of the Christian religion In the fourth century and so on or you think of the killing times of our covenanting fathers where they're being hunted and hounded everywhere they're meeting in the on the moors and you know in caves and men and women are being killed children being killed you know for the cause of the lord jesus christ and yet the gospel was flourishing at the same time and the lord was preparing them and he did bring relief with the coming of william and mary and all that the establishment of the, the true religion in Scotland and so on, though atten- attended with many weaknesses and imperfections, there were nevertheless gains that were secured there. This is a call to trust the Lord, that he will stretch forth his hand against the wrath of his enemies, to wait upon him. It is folly, it is madness. To be fighting against God. You know, we we think of these sort of the, I don't know, I almost feel as if they're inadequate pictures, but you you have these, um, you know, abortion rallies or whatever, sodomite rallies, whatever else it is. People are screaming and yelling about and all of the wickedness of their their pursuits. I mean you, you look upon those crowds. The Christians should look upon those crowds, and there are many things you can draw from it, but one of them is this the wrath of the Lamb is upon them. I mean, here are people that are screaming and yelling and marching in order to defend the right to 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 to, to murder their own posterity. The wrath of the Lamb is upon them. We're marching for all of this sexual. Perversion, and immorality, grotesque. The wrath of the Lamb is upon them. It's madness. It's folly to be fighting against God. We need to recognize the overruling hand of providence. When God's cause is threatened, the Lord is the one who stretches forth his hand against his enemies. So the response of slavish fear is sinful. Not only inappropriate, not just misguided, it's sinful. We're to be trusting in the Lord. Nor are we to be putting our confidence in princes. Cursed is the man that trusteth in men. We're to be making our hope, placing our hope in the Lord himself. And when enabled to do so, we can bear our injuries with meekness because we see what others don't see. We see the Lord above it. We see the Lord ruling and overruling. We see the Lord perfecting his work. We see the Lord advancing his cause, even if it's underground. You'll remember the language of Rutherford talking about our own personal uh, afflictions. You know, he says, remember, you have in wintertime It appears as if everything's dead on the surface, but there's a lot going on underneath the surface with the roots and so on. So humility thrives best in winter. Remember, the Lord's work is underground. It's unseen by the natural eye. The Lord is accomplishing things that are going to stagger the imaginations of men, his elect people for all of eternity as they look back upon the works of God and what seemed as a mangled mess all those twists and turns and intricate overlaying threads, the Lord was pleased to bring about something absolutely beautiful for the glory of His own name and the good of His own people. That brings us thirdly to triumph. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. So we have two things. Thou wilt revive me, and thy right hand shall save me. Both of these are descriptive of triumph. The Lord is actually pleased to take the wrath of men and to tighten his reins on it, to restrain it at times, to say thus far and no further, to put an end to it, to hedge it in, there are other times when the Lord is pleased to actually turn it upside down, so that the wrath is is is, is used to produce praise to, to the Lord. You you see this. Paul was not in Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, he wasn't indifferent to the to the Lord Jesus Christ or to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He he laid awake at night plotting and planning how to kill as many Christians as he possibly could. How to put once and for all an end to the preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. He was covering great swaths of land and running from city to city in order to persecute, to find, to hunt them out, and to imprison them, if not to martyr them, as he did with Stephen. Wrath anger, opposition. Sometimes the Lord will come and he will revive his church and save his church through the conversion of their enemies. So there's Paul. He goes from being a weapon in the hand of the devil to a weapon in the hand of Jesus Christ. He goes from being the most fierce persecutor of the Church, to the most powerful preacher in the Church, the Apostle to the Gentiles, used by God for the planting of churches all over Asia and Europe, and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a big chunk of our New Testament Bibles. Sometimes the Lord will save his people and revive them by diverting God's enemies from their course. So it looks inevitable. It looks certain. You know, the way things are going, we can see for sure what is going to come about, what the consequences will be. And the Lord chooses to divert from their course. So there's Sennacherib. He's saying some pretty nasty stuff, right? We would feel uncomfortable saying it ourselves, though we're forced to when we read our Bibles, right? The stuff he says to the Jews on the wall, pretty rough stuff. And he's saying it's as good as done. You know, all the other gods of all the other nations said the same sort of stuff you say, Israel. And look where they are now, sacked and all their gods destroyed. You're an idiot if you think that your God's going to deliver you. What does the Lord do? The Lord comes down and he diverts him so that he's sent away. He has to pack up and run and leave as as a consequence. Or you think of how God sends the Philistines to the relief of David in the days of Saul. There's all sorts of things that take Saul away. Saul looks as if he's got David in the net. Boom, the Lord sends Saul uh, fleeing from him. Sometimes the Lord revives his people and saves them with his right hand by destroying his enemies. So the fact is, and the Bible teaches us, that our God kills people. Our God kills people. And those who rage against him and against his people, sometimes he will just snuff out, cut down, remove them from the world. Pharaoh, you want to bang your shield? You want to say, no, I won't let my people go? Well, then you must die. You've been called and called and called to let my people go. And now you're going to die. You know, Herod takes all this praise. You're like a god. You're so absolutely, your rhetoric is so eloquent and so on. He takes that glory to himself and the Lord says, Cuts him right down, eaten with worms. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at the glory of my kingdom. You know, another magistrate. Look at all that I have accomplished and all that I've done. You know, this is great Babylon. We're the greatest nation that's ever lived. And we have all this stuff. Look what we've accomplished. And the Lord cuts him down. Sends him into the field to eat grass like a, like a cow as a consequence the Lord is pleased at times to turn the hearts of enemies. You have that language. He many times causes their very en- enemies to be at peace with them. Daniel found this this as well, didn't he? I mean the Lord was pleased to take and make a pagan empire friendly to Daniel more than one same thing was true with regards to shadrach meshach and abednego at times the lord revives his people and his right hand saves them by exposing the plots and secrets of god's enemies they think everything's under wrap and it's all hidden it's all secure you know, they've got many, many, many layers. In our day and age, we would think in terms of cybersecurity and all of the, I don't know anything about it, but all of the layers and layers and layers of impenetrable security. You, no one can possibly break through this and so on. God exposes the plots and secrets. Remember Elisha and the king of Assyria? He's out to get, out, he's out to get God's people and he's going to do this thing and that thing. And finally, he's like, who's the, who's the traitor in my bedroom? Who's, who's, in, who's in here telling, telling the king of Israel what I'm plotting to do? And they say, no one. What you say in your bedroom, Elijah reports as a prophet of God to, to the king. The Lord is able to do these things. All of history is ordered for the good of Zion, for the good of the church. And though, as we've said before, there may be many, many and will be many, many storms through which the church must pass. All of those storms serve to bring her into the harbor of God's appointment, ultimately to heaven itself. God sets the bounds. He sets the bounds of the sea. He sets the bounds of space. He sets the bounds of even the wicked, and they are not able to exceed them. They can only accomplish what he has sovereignly purposed and intended. John Calvin spoke about how Satan rages like a roaring lion. But he has a bit in his mouth. And God holds the reins. I wonder if Bunyan actually pulled a leaf from Calvin at that point. Because you'll remember in the Pilgrim's Progress, children, how Christian is making his way up the path. And the lions come out. And they're ferocious. and They're roaring. And they're... It's you know, scary, and there's teeth, and there's all that would be fearful. Christians told, stay the path. Stay on the path that the, that, that, that's been appointed for you. They cannot reach you. They cannot touch you. And he discovered, as he did, as he went forward in the Lord's, in the Lord's strength, that they were chained. And they could come with all their fury, but they could not reach him. It's true of, of the devil. He may roar like a lion but he has a bit in his mouth and God is the one who holds the reins. Well, it makes you wonder. God says that even the wrath of man shall praise him. If the wrath of man shall praise God, how much more should we? We don't just wait. We don't wait until we see it. Show me. And then I'll give thanks for it. No. In this case, we know ahead of time, and it's as good as done, it's certain under the the promise of God that he's going to bring good to his people. So we have verse 8, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. He will perfect that which concerneth me. His mercy is going to endure. He's not going to forsake the work of, of his own hands. And so the Lord's people do well when in the midst of trouble and even before finding themselves in the midst of the trouble, already worshiping, adoring, praising, and extolling God for who He is and what He does and giving our own yea and amen to the promises that He has pledged to us to recognize that whatever comes and whatever may come and whatever indeed will come, that every single bit of it has been ordained by a sovereign God to bring about his divine purpose, the execution of his unchanging decree, which has at its heart the glory of his Son through the good of his church, so that the church is bound to prosper. It does not matter if all of the money in the world, all of the military might in the world, all of the smartest people in the world and everything else in terms of resource that you could gather together if it were all. Indeed, if you were to take all of the resources of all of the history of the world and bring them to one time and one place, and then to unleash as a tidal wave every bit of those resources, withholding nothing, on the church in the midst of one of its weakest seasons throughout the history of the world, you would not be able to destroy it. Because it doesn't matter how much opposition is raised against the church. It is ultimately raised against an invincible, omnipotent, almighty arm of Almighty God. And nothing matches that. Nothing can match that. The Lord is the strength of his people, and the Lord will have his way. And his way is perfect. And therefore, his people will be preserved, his cause will go forth. You say, well, pastor, we hear all this, and we, we understand it, and we believe it, but, you know, what about us in our particular circumstances, me as an individual, or my family, or whatever? Are, are, are you saying that we are given a guarantee that everything will be rosy and happy and, and fine for us in, in, circum, in all of our circumstances? That's not at all what I'm saying. So don't, don't mistake in me. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that God's cause, his church, his kingdom will thrive and flourish and advance. That is what you can be certain of. You may be called to martyrdom. Your family, like so many of our fathers before us, may lose absolutely everything because of the cause of Christ. Your job, your house, your money, whatever else. I'm not saying you're promised to be relieved of that. But at the end of the day, if you're a true believer, what matters most to you? And what matters most to you, I'm not being overly, I don't want to be overly burdensome to anyone in terms of the emotion that we necessarily feel. But at the end of the day, Christ's cause and kingdom is what matters most. Indeed, is all that matters most to us. And if we're we're called upon to lose in order that his kingdom may gain, then then the Lord's will be done. Then may he fetch glory for himself in all of those circumstances because he remains our full portion and he remains our exceeding great reward. And so we cannot lose him, as you well know, as our full portion and nothing and no one can ever strip us of the eternal reward what is the loss of life and property in this world in contrast to the gains of all of the eternal reward that the lord promises to his people when compared we're made to see that there is no loss there can be no loss ultimately when all is placed in the scale as it must be as it should be The Lord will revive. He'll revive his individual, the individual Christian. He'll revive his church. His right hand will save the individual Christian. His right hand will save the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How and why? The answer is because Christ himself was revived. Because Christ himself was delivered. Because Christ himself, by the strength of his own right arm, had the victory over all enemy, all of his enemies, and all opposition. So that reigning, he will have all of his enemies put under his footstool. It's only because of the Lord Jesus Christ that his people are given any guarantee at all. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, which you will. Thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies and thy right hand shall save me. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, our help and hope, our strength, our refuge, our salvation, the one whose right arm is stretched out against our enemies, and whose arm is stretched out to save us. O Lord, grant to us that we would walk in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of trouble, with confidence and faith, having our eyes glued upon our triumphant redeemer our true King, the King whom we delight to have rule over us. O Lord, bring forward thy cause. Do it for the glory of thy Son. Do it for the good of thy people. Do it for the good of souls that are yet to be gathered in to thy kingdom. But we pray, do it according to thy word, for we ask it in Jesus' name.